Well, good morning. We made it. And it's good to be together. And just a reminder, you know, when there's crazy weather like last night, we try and put the information on the website so that you'll know if we're having services or not. And it's always kind of tricky to figure out when to call it and how to communicate it, but that's the easiest way for you to know. So glad to uh, pass that on and glad to have you here. And this place is all decked out for Christmas. And I don't know if you noticed the new banners here with the Star of Bethlehem here. And I, I don't know if you notice what's kind of radiating out of these stars. You notice what they use here, the artists? Those aren't just any CD, though, let me just say. Those are the leftover Tom Nebel CDs. <laughs> and, and, you know, the good thing is, he's not feeling as guilty. We're being good stewards of those CDs. And we'll be able to perpetually use those as we celebrate Christmas. Well, here we are, starting out our Christmas series, Missing Christmas. And... When you hear that phrase, you might go, missing Christmas. What is this about here? Well, it's about people who missed the first Christmas and people who missed Christmas today. Uh, You've got the busy people of Bethlehem. We're going to be looking at them a little bit today. And powerful leaders like like Herod and like Caesar Augustus. We're going to look at the religious leaders, like the people that were religious leaders in Jesus' day and how they missed Christmas and and how the, uh, the, the innkeeper, unaware, missed Christmas. And, and then end up on Christmas Eve talking about the shepherds who didn't miss Christmas. When you think about missing Christmas, and you think about how early we start celebrating Christmas, and you go, it doesn't seem like it's our problem. I walked into a mall on Friday, and I, I noticed the holiday hours. The holiday hours began November 1st. Missing Christmas when we spend two months or a sixth of our year shopping for Christmas, doesn't seem like it's our problem. Missing Christmas when we send almost two billion Christmas cards a year, when we will send 340 million packages, and that's just through UPS. Doesn't seem like we're missing Christmas. We're going to buy 21 million trees and decorate them like this one. We're going to have lots of parties and The average person here, we're going to gain, I know this is like really depressing, but we're going to gain at least seven pounds. No wonder we're all going to the health clubs in January. Doesn't seem like we're missing Christmas. Not with all the parties and decorations around. Missing Christmas when we'll spend an estimated 400, listen to this, $440 billion over the Christmas season. The average person $800 on Christmas doesn't seem like we're missing Christmas when the Christmas lights start showing up burn brightly like at this house it seems like they're out as soon as the pumpkin candle's gone out doesn't it I mean Halloween's over and boom we're into Christmas well you know we're really serious about our lights this guy is obviously really serious about lights but let me show you a video you want to see what serious about lights looks like check this out
All right, now you get the idea. Now, that's just the 30, first 30 seconds of this three-minute presentation that this guy's put together. It, it's spectacular. And it begs the question, really, missing Christmas? Doesn't seem like we were missing Christmas. Seems like it's just getting earlier and earlier, this Christmas craze every year. It doesn't seem like we're missing Christmas. But God's Word says from the very first Christmas, from the very first Christmas, people have been missing Christmas. So let's look at John's Gospel, chapter 1, and hear it from God himself through the writer John. Page 750, John chapter 1. John's going to tell us people have been missing Christmas from the very, very beginning. Now when you read John's Gospel, it reads a lot like the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen to it. In fact, let's just read it together. John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I got to believe there's somebody here this morning that's read this for the very first time. You've never read this before. You've never heard this before. And you're asking this question, who in the world is John talking about? This, this person who he describes as the Word. This person who's this true light. Who's the Word? Who's the light? Who's the hymn of this passage? And all you need to do is start looking at how John describes this person. And what do we learn from verse 1? Well, this hymn is someone who is with God from the very beginning. Speaking of his eternal nature from the very beginning, and God has no beginning. He was with God in the beginning. He not only was with God, but verse 1 says, He was God. The person he's talking about is divine. What else do we know here? Verse 3 and verse 4, He created all things. Everything that we have is created through this person. He says it positively, and he says it negatively. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the author of life. 
And that life is a light that shines into men's hearts and lives. What else do we know? We know that he follows on the heels of some guy named John. Did you see that in verse 6? There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now you're thinking, well, I wonder if it's the John who's the author of this gospel. Is that the John we're talking about? No, it's not the John. This John is written about in just a few verses later. He's called John the Baptist right here in verses 19 and following. He is described in Luke's first chapter. He's actually the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. He's a forerunner, if you will, kind of a a PR guy of this person who John is writing about. He's a very interesting guy. He's kind of eccentric. Runs around in camel hair coat. He eats locusts and honey. Not your typical diet. He hangs out in the desert. That's an interesting place to be a point person. I mean, he's not the kind of guy that you would think Donald Trump would send out to kind of bring something big that he's unveiling to the people's attention. This is not the kind of PR work that's going to win you the award as the apprentice. You're not going to get the job. What was his job? This one named John. What was his purpose? Look at verse 7. He was to bear witness to this light, to this other person. He's pointing to this light so that through him and through his testimony, all men might believe. Believe in this one that he's preparing the way for. Verses 8 and 9 go on and tell us that he's a light. He's a true light. Later in John chapter 8, verse 12, this person will declare of himself that he's the light of the world. Reminds us of the prophet Isaiah who says, speaking about what was going to take place in the future. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then he goes on to announce, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so John is reminding us back to what the writers in the Old Testament were writing about. This this promised one, this Savior the light of the world. And finally, we read in verse 14 that this one who was with God, this one who is God, this one who is the true light, this one whom John is preparing is the word that becomes flesh. It's where we get the word incarnation. He took on human flesh. That which was divine took on human flesh. And he came And he pitched his tent. That's what that word dwelling means. He made his dwelling. He tabernacled among us, just like God had done in the Old Testament when God pitched his tent in the garden and hung out with Adam and Eve. When he pitched his tent in the wilderness and had Moses build it, and wherever they went, God was right there in their midst in the tabernacle, just like God was present in David's temple built by his son Solomon. He, he tabernacled, it says right here. Who is this one full of grace and truth? It's none other than the Son of God. You, you see, when he mentions that he is full of grace and truth at the end of verse 14, then you move down in the text and you see in verse 17, he gives us 
exactly who he's talking about. It's no longer a mystery. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through whom? Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about. Jesus Christ. This one who John describes as the word. Ah, that's fascinating. Because for 400 years, God's people haven't heard a word from God. It's like someone pushed the mute button and nobody heard anything from God for 400 years. And all of a sudden, John says, God spoke. And here's who he spoke through, the word, to tell us what God is like, to tell us of God's love. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He reflects God's character and his nature and the exact representation of his being. Huge, amazing credentials. You think about all the degrees that we've pursued collectively in this room, and there's a lot of them. You think about all our accomplishments. You think about all of our financial means clumped together. You think about our collective best reputation and you put it all together here and you stack it next to Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, and there is absolutely no comparison. It's amazing. The one and only. No one like Him. I'll tell you what's even more amazing. What's even more amazing is this one who came, God in the flesh. When he came, people didn't get it. They missed him. I don't know if you saw those phrases in our text as we read them, but look at those highlighted phrases. The darkness, they didn't get it. Those people living in darkness, they didn't understand what was going on. The world... People that are hostile to God, they didn't get it. They didn't recognize him as the Son of God. They didn't get it. His own people, the people who had the promises given to them over the centuries, who knew about this one who was going to come, they didn't get it because they never received him. They never received this gift from God. They didn't believe in him as the Son of God, God's perfect Savior. For mankind, they completely missed it. Arguably, the greatest event in history. Because you don't have the cross. And you don't have the resurrection. And Paul says, if we don't have the resurrection, we're a bunch of fools. We should just throw it all out. Because it means nothing. And we know this. There is no resurrection unless he's died on the cross. And there's no death on the cross unless he came and lived his life on this earth. Arguably, the greatest event in human history, and they missed it. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. People have been missing Christmas from the very first Christmas. Is that us? Is it possible for us who now understand what maybe they didn't understand back in Bethlehem, to still be missing Christmas? The answer is yes. 
it's possible. It's not just John's take on it. Turn back to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 2, kind of the classic Christmas story in the New Testament. Page 724. We realize that this isn't just John's take on it. Luke gives us the same understanding here. Verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome here, the Roman Empire, he issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary traveled a great distance. It took a long time. That distance normally took about four days travel, 72 miles from the north there up in Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It was a long journey. It's safe to say Mary, who's great with child, it took him the better part of a week. We don't know for sure, but it was a long time. And when they dragged into Bethlehem, they were bone tired. Very tired. They had not break, broken any land speed records, that is for sure. So why are they in Bethlehem? Well, the text tells us. Caesar has spoken, and he's the real deal. And he's got some bad dudes that work for him. And if you don't do his bidding, it isn't going to go well for you. So Caesar says, census, and everybody starts walking. That's why they're going to Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is the place of his forefathers. Now, you guys have heard me talk about my Swiss heritage. Did you know that I traveled under a Swiss passport? Well, I didn't really actually travel under it. But I thought on our last sabbatical, it might be a good idea to have a passport. Now, I've got dual citizenship, so I've got a Swiss passport and a U.S. passport. Very unlike my American passport, the Swiss passport places here, it's the fifth line down on the left, it asks for your place of origin. You see, on our U.S. passport, it asks for our, where we were born, our birthplace. That, that's what we track here in the States. In Switzerland, they want to know what's your, your place of origin. So it doesn't say Evanston, Illinois, where I was born. It says place of origin, Baleg, Lignerol, little hamlets nestled against the French-Swiss border. That, that's my place of origin. That's where my ancestors be, have been registered. That's where our children are registered, in Baleg, Lignerol. Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he's part of David's family, King David. That's a great family line to be part of. And he's got to go to Bethlehem because that's where David is from. The city of bread, the house of bread is what Bethlehem means. And he goes there, not just because Caesar's given an edict, but because that's where his ancestors go. And not just because that's where his ancestors are from, but because God has prophesied way back in the Old Testament two important things. He said of David, David, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I'm going to place one of your descendants, one of your sons, great, 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 great grandsons. 
He's going to be on your throne and he's going to set up an eternal reign here. An eternal king is going to come out of your family tree. Then we have in Micah 5 too, these words. You'll see them up on the screen. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. John's words are ringing with us. Uh, here, as we hear, hear John say, he was with God from the beginning. His origins are from of old. Why, Bethlehem? It was God's plan. It was God's plan. At face reading, you read this and you go, wow, Joseph and Mary are just pawns in a Roman emperor's hands. And you realize, not at all. In fact, the one who's a pawn is Caesar himself. That's why they're in Bethlehem. Because God said, that's where my king is going to be born. In some obscure, small place that no one would ever dream of entering the king of all kings. That's where I want him to be born. The text tells us where he was born in Bethlehem. First of all, he wasn't in some relative's home. That's not where Mary's giving birth to her firstborn son. They're not in, in, in the Holiday Inn of Bethlehem. You may find it in Bethlehem, PA, but there was no Holiday Inn. There was no room in the inn. There was no room, verse 7 says, for them anywhere. And that's why we find Joseph and Mary out back in a stable. I mean, the equivalent in our day is they're, they're, they're out in the barn. They're out in the stable. They're, they're out under the stars. Scholars say it could have been a cave. It could have been with just the open sky above them. What we do know is they're right there in a filthy stable alongside of animals. No place for the king of kings to be born. Oh, we get all sentimental. We go to the Christmas pageants and we see, we see the manger and the hay spilling out. And it kind of warms our heart, doesn't it? Well, let me suggest to you that it shouldn't warm our heart as much as shock us. Do you remember the first time, the very first time you saw a homeless person and you figured out, this is where they sleep. Do you remember that? You weren't filled with warm feelings of sentiment. You were filled with shock and pity and horror that somebody in our country, in our city, would have to sleep outside under an overpass or alongside of a vent of a warm building down on Lower Wacker Drive. It's a shock. It's a shock. As we read it again, it should be that the King of Kings is born in a filthy feeding trough with no roof over his head. And we note that who's there and who's not there, it's a pretty small contingent. The ancient artists capture it well, Joseph and Mary and the baby, perhaps the angels looking down. We know in the text that soon there'll be others that come, the shepherds that are out on the hillside, but there's not a whole lot of fanfare. It's Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Mary's mother's not there to help. No family around to share in their joy. There's no midwife to cut the cord, to clean up baby Jesus. It's just them. 
Bethlehem today is a strong contrast. You go to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve, there's a crowd. They seemingly don't miss Christmas today in Bethlehem. Or do they? Doesn't seem like we're missing Christmas. I mean, look at this place. Or do we? The scriptures tell us from the very first Christmas, people have been missing Christmas. And in the busyness of celebrating Christmas, the message today is don't miss Christ. Don't miss Christ. I don't know why the people of Bethlehem missed Christmas. It's a pretty busy, kinetic, wild time. There's a lot of similarities to that day and our day. Families coming together as they all met in their family town, just like families come together around Christmas, traveling great distances then, and we do that today. Oh, you can imagine there are a lot of ticked-off, ripped-off people thinking about having to pay taxes to the Romans. Hate it. We live under Rome's iron fist. We want to be free, agitated, maybe depressed. Here we are, the chosen people of God. And we're slaves again. Now, there's a lot of agitated people this month. We might be one of them sometime this week, next week. Depressed? People struggling with depression this month? Oh, yeah. A lot of similarities. A lot of people missed it. Most of the people missed it. A lot of people, maybe some of us, are going to miss it again. And so as we go through the parties, wrap the presents, see our kids sing or perform, go to a concert, see another Christmas special, go to a new one, do some caroling, bake some cookies, more food, more parties, more food, more parties. Will we miss Christmas? Will we miss Christ? You know, for a lot of people, they don't understand how Christ has anything to do with Christmas because so much of our celebration has nothing to do with Christ. And that's nothing new. Lewis, in his letter to Joy Davidman, writes to her about what's going on in his day. This is now almost 50 years ago. December 29, 1958, in his letters to an American lady, he writes this to Joy Davidman. Just a hurried line to tell a story which puts the contrast between our feast of the nativity and all this ghastly Xmas racket at its lowest. Don't you love how the Brits say things? My brother heard a woman on the bus say as the bus passed the church with a crib outside it. A crib is a manger. And here's what she said. Oh, Lord, they bring religion into everything. Look, they're even dragging it into Christmas. They bring religion into everything. They're even dragging the manger into Christmas. Friends, that's the day we live in. That's the day we live in. And the danger is, though we may know what Christmas is about, the birth of God's only Son, the King of kings into this world, we may miss Christmas as we hurry through another month or two months of celebration. And so has the busyness of Christmas hit you yet? 
It's about to if it hasn't. I'd encourage you to slow down. And even this evening, take out your calendar. Look at how how you're scheduling things out. I I encourage you to think about all the traditions that are part of your Christmas celebrating and and get those somehow in the calendar. Maybe just look and say, are all these things really at the heart of Christmas? Are they really at the heart of Christ? Maybe there's some paring down that we can do. Look at how we're going to spend our money and say, is that what it's like as a follower of Christ to, to celebrate Christmas? Maybe this coming month, you could take up this challenge of setting aside some time on Sunday nights to just read through Luke 2 again. It's quietly, out loud. That doesn't sound right, does it? Quietly, out loud? Um, in, the, in the quietness of the moment, but out loud so you hear it. Read through it. Once a week to say, that, that's, that's, what, that's what this is about. Now write out some things that you're thankful for. Maybe a prayer back to God as you slow down because it could be said of us they didn't understand, they didn't recognize, they didn't receive him. They completely missed it. The greatest story ever. Missing a great story is nothing new. It happened in 1903, December 17th, Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, they made their first flight, all of 12 seconds, but it's the first man flight. It's huge news. These guys would, you know, remember they, they owned this bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. They'd flip a coin every day. They're going out to try this thing of this flying machine. Orville won that day on the fifth flight. He got it up for 12 seconds and landed. And the minute they landed, those brothers ran to the telegram office and they sent one to their sister Catherine. And here's how it read. First sustained flight in history. 12 seconds. We'll be home for Christmas. Well, Catherine, she was so excited. She went to the local newspaper there in Dayton, told the editor there of the news, gave, her a, gave him a copy of everything and said, look, maybe when they get in in a couple of weeks, you'll want to interview them. He said, that's a great idea. And you know what? I'll make sure it gets in the paper this week. So two days later, on the 19th of September, on the sixth page of the society section, here's what they read. Wright Brothers, local bicycle shop owners, coming home for the holidays. What's wrong with that headline? Completely missed the story. This guy had the opportunity to break one of the greatest stories of his lifetime. And he totally missed it. He totally missed it. And you and I, this week, have the opportunity to continue to share the beautiful message that rang out from the angels. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To all people, good news, great joy to all people. And so as we enter this Christmas season, let's not miss Christ. Let's not miss Christ. One of our families has a tradition that every Christmas they celebrate communion. 
You go, wow, I've never heard of that. It's kind of weird. I mean, it's his birth and his death, and why would you bring those two things together? Well, we're bringing it together right now in our service because Jesus Christ was born to die. He's born to die. When John the Baptist, this, this guy who's out in front of Jesus helping announce the king is coming, the first time he meets his cousin, you know what he says? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was he saying? He's saying there's something special with this guy. He is the Lamb of God. What does this Lamb of God thing have to do? Why are the Bible writers all so caught up with metaphors? What's this deal with the Lamb? First the Word, the Light, now the Lamb. What's the Lamb? The Lamb is Exodus, second book of the Bible. God's people are captive to the Egyptians. And God is going to break them out of there. And he's going to send this angel of death that's going to come. And this angel of death is going to kill the firstborn of everybody who lives in Egypt at the time. And every one of the firstborn of their livestock. And God said to his people, here's what you need to do. You take a lamb. You bring this lamb in your home for a few days. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be spotless. And then you kill that lamb. And you take the blood of that lamb. And you apply it to the sides and over the top and the other side of your doorway so that when the angel of death comes... He will pass over you and spare you from death. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's with that profound understanding that Jesus was born to die, that you and I might live. Live for him, live with him forever. The Son of God became a man that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. And if we have received him and believed in Christ's name and placed our faith in what he did on the cross, then this meal, this nativity feast is for you. At Door Creek, this table is open to all who put their faith in Christ. So if that's you, come and be strengthened as we remember again why he came, why he came. In just a moment, the elements are going to be passed. They're stacked together, so take both the cup and then the bread underneath it. Hold those until we can participate together. And as we reflect, let us prepare our hearts, confessing our sins, proclaiming again our great love Let us enter into the mystery of the incarnation. Let's pray. So our Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray for those who maybe up until this day, they didn't understand. Maybe up to this day, they never recognized who your son was. We pray that you would grant them faith to receive the greatest gift ever given to man. And in receiving that gift, they would have life and joy and peace and hope and a reason to live. And Lord, we would pray that this Christmas we would not miss you. That we would celebrate you and we'd grow to understand more fully the mystery of your great love for us. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.